So someone texted in this question, what is the difference between Jesus being called Son of Man and being called Son of God? And I thought, hey, that would make a great historical minute. Well, turns out basically there are two titles that Jesus gives himself, and while these two titles are similar, they are a little bit different. See, Son of Man was used in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, the Anointed One who God promised. Most explicitly, we find this in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So. Jesus' hearers would have definitely been familiar with this verse. So really, any time that Jesus used Son of Man, he's declaring that he himself is the Messiah. Now, it's interesting because it also emphasizes his human nature, that really he is fully human. Now, Son of God, however, emphasizes his divinity, how he is God in flesh, and that he has this intimate relationship with God the Father. This father-son relationship is mentioned 60 times in the Synoptic Gospels, but it's also mentioned over a hundred times in the book of John alone. So while Jesus refers to himself as both son of God and son of man, the two have a slightly different meaning. So there you go and thanks for the question and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, you're an amazing God, and we, we thank you for your continual patience with us as we walk through life, for your continual love for us as we, we struggle with life, as your continual promises that give us hope as we go through life. Fathers, we, we dig into Matthew again this morning or this evening, Lord. We just pray that you continue to send us your spirit, that you would comfort us and strengthen us where we need comforting and strengthening, that you'd give us hope in areas that we need just hope for tomorrow, and that you convict us in those areas of our lives, Lord, that we have not yielded over to you. We're we make bad decisions and where they complicate our lives. Father, that you would give us strength to overcome those areas and power. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name tonight. And God's people said? Amen. Well, there's a few more questions people uh, sent in just before the, the session ended last time. And Mike went over the first one. But let me go over a couple of these other ones. The second question was, does trusting Jesus mean worshiping Jesus? Or does it mean follow Jesus and worship God? Now, it's kind of a distinction. Um, without a distinction, and yet as you go through all of the scriptures, right, you'll see that Jesus, whenever he talks about the Father, is always pointing glory to the Father, right? I want you to pray in my name, but I want to give glory to the Father. We pray to the Father. He himself would go and pray to the Father. But they're also one and the same in that they're part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's various scriptures that talk about actually worshiping God. Um, because the third question was, if it, if it does mean to worship Jesus, where does it say that in the Bible, to worship Jesus? In Philippians 2.10 it says, So that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of his Father. In Matthew 10.42 it says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Matthew 2.2, 2, uh, is he was born king of the Jews, for he saw his star when it rose, and and have come to worship him. Again, that was the wise men. But maybe the clearest is in Revelations 5, verses 5 through 14. And if they have a Bible, you can go through that with me if you want. But it just reads this way. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among, well, let's start in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, it represents Jesus, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And when he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne... And we had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be bless, blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And so that section of scripture is talking about Jesus. It's talking about him coming again. It's, and in this case, he's opening up the strolls, right? And, and all the elders in heaven and, and all the myriads of angels and everybody, they're falling down and they're worshiping both the lamb and the father, right? Which are somehow the same, the triune godness. And so the first question is, does trusting Jesus mean worshiping Jesus or does it mean following Jesus and worshiping God? If you worship Jesus, you're worshiping God. And it's the reason Jesus continues to point us to the Father is that we can't know the Father except through him. And so it's kind of a distinction without a distinction, if that helps. I don't know. If it didn't, fire up another question and I'll answer it. Uh, that's the best I could do at this time. And then were the physical sacrifices required of the Israelites to remind them of the cost of sin until Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, would appear? Uh, the answer to this is the, the physical sacrifices were a propitiation for, or they were a substitute for the person bringing the sacrifice. All the way through scripture, when somebody sins, the blood of that person is required. That person deserves to die. The wages of sin is death. So God has a very serious take on sin. And so in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, they provided a way to find forgiveness before God. And he said, you can take a lamb or sometimes an ox or a ram or whatever it might be, and you can bring that as a substitute for you. And so that's why they had to slay the animal, right? So the blood might be spilt. They would wipe it all over the altar, sprinkle the altar so that it, your, that blood would be a substitute for your blood before God and you'd be forgiven, that picture, though, helps us understand why Jesus had to die, doesn't it? If, he, if it wasn't for his blood that was a substitute for all the sin of all the world, he wouldn't have had to die. But blood had to be shed. And so Jesus was the perfect lamb that was slain. And so because he was slain for all of time and for all of humanity, for the forgiveness of all who would believe in him, we don't have to do it anymore. But it wasn't just a, a symbol or it wasn't just a... Um, how would they put it? It wasn't just a reminder. It was an actual substitute for the sin of the people. All right. Fire in any other questions as you got them. And we'll start in Matthew 12, verse 30 tonight. 
We kind of left off with this last week. It says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We, we talked about how there's just no middle ground with Jesus, how it's impossible to sit on the fence. Either you trust him with everything and you act accordingly, right? Or you at least try to do that, right? Or you go the other way and you say, this is more important or this is more important or this is more important and you create an idol for yourself. God says, those who believe in me, that I am the son of God, that I died for their sins, that I'm Lord of their life. And he opens up the kingdom of heaven for all. But you can't sit on the fence. It's not okay to come to worship and, on Sundays and check it off the box and say, that's all I need to do for the kingdom of God. Because as we've gone through the text, we see that discipleship is much more than that. Then he goes on and he says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this is one of the great questions of all time. What is the sin against the Holy Spirit. At the very face value, it would be slander against, it would be slander against the Spirit. And it would not be from somebody who didn't know God's word, or it would not be from somebody who wasn't a believer, or I'm sorry. So if you were an unbeliever, you could say, you could carelessly say something against Jesus, or you could carelessly say something against God, not really knowing what you were saying. All those things can be forgiven. The impetus here is that if you know who God is and you know the Spirit and you know the love of Christ and you slander the Spirit, there's a sense that that's the unforgivable sin. And it's done so with a, a hardness of heart and a, a willful disobedience against him. And it essentially happens when you don't want to follow, right? You've been brought in. You, the Lord loves you. He's done amazing things for you in your life. You, you've clung to him at different points in your life. You have a relationship with him. And all of a sudden, something creeps up in your life that becomes more important. And you decide to choose it rather than God. There, there's an example of a when I first moved here, there was a guy who went through a divorce, and, um, and his wife, I mean, she, she, was, she was a good lady, I mean, was a leader in the church for many years, and, and she, she started an affair um, with somebody at work. And I, I just had gotten here, and so I had an opportunity to counsel them a little bit, and I just remember sitting down at the table with her and, and saying, you know, your choice isn't between this guy and your husband. It's between this guy and God. God says you're committing adultery. God says you're committing sin. I mean, what are you doing? It, it's one of the big 10, you know, and, and her eyes got big as she finally realized that what she was doing was sinful. Prior to that, she was saying, well, I don't want to break it off with this guy because maybe he'll become a Christian. You know, I mean, that's how distorted her thinking had gotten. But we talked through all these different elements of, of what she was doing and how reconciliation with her husband was what God commanded, but ultimately she chose this other thing to pursue rather than obedience to God, rather than reconciliation with her husband. And she walked away from not just her husband, but from God. Still hasn't been back to church as far as I know. When you get to those points in life, it's not an accidental walking away from God. It's a purposeful walk. Does that make sense? You're saying this has become more important than everything I know about God. And I'm going to roll the dice that this will pay off in big ways for me because I don't want to think about what this might mean for my future. And so whenever we talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit, the simple or easy way to say it is that it's unbelief, right? If it, unbelief is the only thing that would send you to hell. It's a rejection of God's Spirit working in your life. It's saying, I don't believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But it usually is coming from someone who understood who God was at the beginning, who understood his grace, as Hebrews talks about, 
and has made a purposeful walk away from Christ to pursue this, that, or the other. In Hebrews, it talks about that person can't even be brought back into the kingdom because of the hardness of heart of which they walked away. Similarly here, it would speak against the same thing. That then would be the unforgivable sin. Because once you walk away from them in this manner, it's hard then to return to them. In different places, Scripture says impossible. So either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, people can say a whole number of things. I was just talking to somebody uh, earlier in the morning, and, and they were saying, have you ever like, been counseling to somebody and talking to somebody and showing them the right way, and they, they nod in agreement, but then go off and do something totally different? Anybody ever had that experience at all? Yeah. I said, I can kind of relate to that a little bit. You know? um, the reality is that we're known by our actions. We say a whole bunch of things, don't we? but we show what we believe by the way that we act. Somebody once said that the best way to see what your priorities are is to look at your checkbook because you see what you spend money on and you tend to spend money on the things that are core and really important to you. You may say my family is the most important thing, right? Or, or providing for them is the most important thing, but then you go and you spend money on this, that, and the other that compromise doing this very thing that you say is important. They say you can tell what's really important to somebody by looking at their day planner, how they spend their time. Again, both of those are actions, spending money and spending time, and you can see what's truly important to them. Again, you can say, my family's the most important thing to me after God, and you, you don't see any devotions with God, and you don't see any extra time with family, and you find that they're working 50, 60 hours a week and then going to the bar on the way home, and there is no time for family or, or for God that they've made time for. So you'll know them by their fruit. It says either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. That was one of John the Baptist's words. You can speak, you can, you, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, I think that's an interesting phrase that a lot of us should take to heart a little bit. Um, to recognize that the words that come out of our mouth are important, um, they do matter, and they speak of something deeper that's going on. When we continually swear, right, is that something that's uplifting to other people or to God? It just speaks of something deeper that's going on. When we continually lie to other people about this, that, or the other, we can rationalize it, we can justify it, we can excuse it, but it speaks of something that's a little bit more damaging that's going on. When we tell off-color jokes that either talk about racism or sexuality in inappropriate ways, we can slough it off as that was just a funny joke. Or we can recognize there's something deeper going on. The reality is that words that come out of our mouth, that they're, they're all Freudian because they all speak of something that's a little bit deeper. And as a result, the, the text goes on. The good person out of his own good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. He's just saying, your words also show who you are. You know, I would say your actions show it better, right? But our words matter too. They should be in concert with our actions. That would be something we'd call integrity. But they matter before God. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people that go to church all the time that say one thing on Sunday morning, 
And on Monday morning, they do a very different thing, or they say a very different thing. And so it's God's challenge to us to kind of think through stuff. And I said it this morning, we're still Christians on, on Sunday morning, yes, but, but also on Monday morning. And so it matters what we do, not just on Sunday morning when we dress, you know, in Hawaii stuff and, and you know, and look the part, but it also matters on Monday morning when we're hanging out with our friends or when we're at work. It matters what we do. God looks at that because it speaks about what's going on in the heart. All of our actions, all the things we say come from what's going on inside. And if we're doing something completely inappropriate, it's because there's some undealt hurt or some undealt sin that's going on. Um, I had a buddy who went through a divorce, and, and that's just a real hard time for anybody. And, and after, it was, still, it was about eight months in, and he just started telling these horribly unfunny, sad and he, jokes, right? And, and he would laugh at them like they were the funniest thing. And I said, buddy, something's going on, man. Those aren't funny. Those are sad. I, I think you're still sad from the divorce. I mean, and, and he was just trying to let some of the inside out in a way that would be healing, but it was belying what was going on inside of him. And so when we find ourselves doing stuff that's just wrong, over the bar, we got to start looking inside. And why is that okay? Why are we allowing that to happen? A study Mike gave um, a few weeks back, said that 75% of uh, the males in our culture are addicted to porn. Uh, and addicted means three times a week for over an hour a time. And that was the bar they set for addicted. So if you only did it two times for an hour, then you were fine. It had to be three times, right? Um, but it speaks to a very unhealthy culture. And because of that stuff that's going on in private and how that affects the heart, have you seen a difference in the way we deal with sexuality in the movies and on TV, in language, in the way we excuse certain things? Absolutely. And it just it starts affecting our society. Why? Because we've hidden this internal sin because we can do it behind closed doors, but it's starting to affect our heart, which affects our mind, which affects our actions and the things that we do. And when a whole culture starts going down that, that road, um, some pretty sick things can happen. All right, um, moving on. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him and said, Teacher, we wish to to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It was an interesting question. They had seen him do miracles. They had heard of the miracles that he had done. He had fed thousands and thousands of people. He brought back eyesight, hearing. He had cast out demons. There was even reports that he walked on the water or that, he's, or that he calmed the storms and the seas, right? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of reports about the power of this guy. First-hand reports that gave evidence for the healings that had been done. But they're asking yet for another sign. They wanted something so conclusive that it would just say, this is it. You know, rain fire down from heaven and we will believe. But the reality is, if he would do something as conclusive of that, it would take away faith. It would be giving in to the temptation Satan gave him at the very beginning to use his power for just as Jonah was three days and the night, three nights in the belly of the giant fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus actually says, I'm going to do something out of this world. I'm going to do something that's going to blow you away. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And then he did it. 
And then he said this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The Ninevites, uh, the city of Nineveh was um, completely bankrupt. They were sold over to sin. They were in the midst of these military campaigns that were just some of the most gruesome and brutal campaigns ever recorded in military history. Ripping open wombs of women, slashing people. It was was pretty barbaric and, and bad. They had given themselves over to corruption at every front, and so God tells Jonah to go prophesy to him, to save him, to turn him. There was prophecies everywhere that said that, that um, Assyria, which the hometown was, or their capital city was Nineveh, that they were going to destroy Israel. Jonah knew this, and he didn't want to go because he was afraid they would turn from their sin and see God if he went. God was pretty convincing, put him in a fish, spit him up in the land, right? So he went and he prophesied. And even this barbaric city that he sold himself over to sin, when they saw Jonah and they heard his words, they repented and they turned toward God. I think a little bit of 9-11, a little bit, there was a short window there. It was about two, three weeks window. But it got our nation's attention in a way that I've never seen paralleled in my lifetime. It was okay for the president to pray. Oprah Winfrey even prayed in a, in a mass uh, prayer service. Um, you had people coming together, praying, seeking the Lord. You had the, the Senate and the House joining together, singing God Bless America, and joining a, a prayer vigil for the first time ever in, our, in our, our nation's history. It was an incredible time. People came back to church and drove seeking the Lord, you know, for two or three weeks. And then things seemed to settle down. We weren't attacked again. And then it slowly dissipated. Actually, it it dissipated pretty quickly. And so you think about God getting our attention in some way, and you start asking yourself, what would it take for God to get our attention in a way that would last more than two or three weeks? You got preachers preaching God's word on almost every street corner in America. Seriously. And if you can't somehow make it to that street corner church, you got it on TV, and you got it on the radio, and you got it on the internet. You can find his word everywhere in our culture today. And if you don't speak English, that's okay. It's translated into more language today than ever before in the history of mankind. It's in more places, in the most remotest part of our world today, where God's word is. So they're not hearing his word in a way that has made a difference. And usually in history, at least the biblical history, God, when they stop hearing his word, he allows calamity to happen. And so in the 9-11 case, he did, and and it got our attention for a short window. The men of Nineveh simply heard God's word. They heard his chastisement, and they repented. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. There is wisdom in God's word, in his truth. Sin makes us stupid, so the converse of that is truth makes us really, really wise and smart. And she somehow recognized it. In the midst of all the stuff that was going on, all the wisdom literature that was out there, she heard about Solomon's wisdom, his truth, and she sought it out because it made more sense than anything she'd ever heard of. She recognized his truth. She, she, she pursued it to the ends of the earth to go to Solomon to seek his counsel, his support. She brought lavish gifts to give to him just so that she could sit at his feet. And every church in America, because they're out on every street corner, I guess, has empty seats every single Sunday 
because this truth doesn't seem to be enough. And so do you get then Jesus' rebuke of these towns? He had done miracles. He himself had done the teaching. He had showed them the way to heaven. He had showed them the power of God. And even that wasn't enough. They didn't believe. And he points out some of these historical things and says, so they will sit in judgment over you because you've blown all this off. When the unclean spirit had, well, I have a question here. Uh, what is the difference between the Son of God in Genesis 6 and the Son of God Jesus claims to be, uh, which I believe he is, just checking. Okay, um, so the Son of God, when he's talking in Genesis 6, is, is talking about the sons of God and the sons of, of man. Uh, that is usually uh, a reference to believers, sons of God, and the sons of man to unbelievers, or descendants of Seth, believers, and the sons of Cain, unbelievers. Um, and over time, they, they intermarried. Uh, there's wisdom throughout Scripture that suggests that a believer should marry a believer. Why? Because if your end goal is heaven, why compromise that with the most important relationship you have next to him with somebody who's working against that? who's working to not go to heaven, right? Who doesn't know the Lord. If, you're gonna, if, you, if heaven is your goal, you want to surround yourself with people who are going the same way, who are going to be encouragers to you, strengtheners for you, get people that remind you of his truth, of his hope, so that you don't get tripped up along the way. Why? Because life is hard. And so there's wisdom all the way through Scripture that suggests that. And, and so in Genesis 6, what you find is they, they didn't do that. And they started, the believers started marrying unbelievers. And all of a sudden, sin entered both sides and corrupted the believer side until the point where there was none left but Noah. And so that's a warning that's given in Genesis 6, and it works all the way to Paul's words, not to be unequally yoked in the New Testament. Um, the Son of God that Jesus claims to be is just like, um, is, is a reference. I mean, it, Jesus says that we're all sons of God. Um, and he references, uh, I forget where he references when he's talking to the Pharisees. But the reality is he's giving them insight in who he is. I'm a son of man, which shows that I'm the Messiah. And I'm a son of God. I am the Messiah. Both were claims to his Messiahship. Both were claiming that he was who he said he was. Both were cryptic enough where they couldn't say, hey, you said you're the Messiah and now we can kill you, right? So, but both were testimonies to who he was. Okay, picking up here. When the unclean spirit had gone out of the person, it passed through the waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first, so it will be with this evil generation. So again, he's, he's talking about the reality of this spiritual war that we're in. And he's talking about evil spirits here. And we're t he's talking about the fact that they, they find places to possess, to inhabit. And there was a practice at that time, especially amongst the Jewish um, rabbis, at least a segment of them, that went out and cast out spirits. But they didn't replace it with Jesus. Um, if, the reality is, we even had uh, was it, six sons of, of, uh, of uh, a certain rabbi that were going out and they were casting out demons, right? And finally the demon turned on him and says, I know Paul and I know whoever else, but I don't know you. And he beat them all up, right? You can cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but if you don't fill that empty place with Jesus, then you leave a void that Satan can re-enter and return to. And then what Jesus suggests here is that the last state of the person is much worse. 
because he brings his buddies, right? And I don't know how that complicates things, but it, it just it, it expounds the evil that you're struggling with. And so he speaks to that and he says, okay, I've come here and I've come to clean the slates. I've come to give you a chance. I've come to, to, to put shackles on Satan. And if you believe in me, everything is yours. But if you don't do that, if you don't repent, if you don't follow me, then your state will be much, much worse than anything you can imagine. Scripture also goes to say he has never known, um, suffers a lesser punishment, and those that have known and rebuked suffer a greater punishment. I don't know what that means other than it's really, really bad if you turn from him. Maybe there's regret involved in hell, I don't know. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking him to speak, but he replied to the man who, was, who, who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, and whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's an interesting thing. He, he talks about the fellowship that we have as believers as one that continues on for eternity as ones that will last forever. And he talks about the families that we have here, and he speaks of that is super important. We talked about this morning of the, of the role of taking care of family and different things. But he speaks to this, this spiritual family as one that has a higher calling, one that's more important. Because again, we're going to be together for, for eternity, forever and ever. And so he says, those who follow me, or what does he say here? He says, those who... Uh, here are my brother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Uh, one of the questions, dealing with a, some, a question series, and one of the, the questions on heaven, and one of the, the questions often that people have about heaven is, are we married in heaven? And the answer Jesus gives is no. Um, but we are surrounded by a multitude of previous family, moms, dads, grandpas, grandmas, whoever was believers before us, plus a whole multitude of other believers that are with us. And the picture you get in heaven is that they kind of replace the role the family has by mutually encouraging us, supporting us, being there for us, loving on us, encouraging us, so that they become that corporate family. We talk about brothers and sisters in Christ here, and that has some effect, but in heaven it's real. And there's a community that fills that void of not having the spouse as that one person in your life. And so uh, the Queen of the South is uh, Queen of Sheba, um, find it in First Kings, I believe. Is that right, Mike? I think Mike's like, I don't know. I think so. Okay. Um, all right, moving on. The, uh, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and a great crowd gathered about him. So he got into the boat, and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. It's an interesting thing at this point. Um, at this point in Matthew, he begins a, a whole section just on his teachings and parables. You start to see, you know, he, he, sh he makes the case for Christ. He says, believe in him. He shows how hard it's going to be. And then he starts showing that there's a division in how his hearers are hearing him, right? Some are receiving him with joy. Some are rejecting him. Some are hating him, the Pharisees, and looking to kill him. And so he goes at this point in his ministry to speaking in many parables so that his believers can still understand and grow. And so that those that reject him won't understand and can't get him tripped up. The Pharisees, knowing parts of Scripture, can read into some of these parables, but though they see, they don't understand. And so he begins his, his teachings on parables in verse 3. He says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, 
A sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the ground, or in good soil, and produced a grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then he goes on to his disciples, and, he, and his disciples came to him and said, why, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, to you has been given, the, to, given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, for it says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For his people's hearts has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and with their eyes they, and their eyes have, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's an interesting thing, um, God's word. It can be understood by second and third graders in great capacity, where they can even interject uh, pieces of wisdom that they picked up, and yet adults can read it and be totally mystified as to its words. And so it gives you the sense that it's the Spirit who gives understanding, right? When you read something that you don't want to hear, you close off rather quickly. When you read something and you don't want to understand or don't read into what God is trying to share with you, you close your ears rather quickly. And then Jesus will speak to that shortly. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So in these parables, God's going to open up the way to heaven. He's going to open up the reality of, of, of believers and unbelievers on this earth. He's going to talk about eternal judgment, and he's going to talk about judgment day, and he's going to talk about the value of the kingdom of heaven. And those who believe will understand and be brought closer, and those who do not will be left outside. And so he begins to explain this parable of the sower, and I'll finish up with that today. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so think about all the times that you've read something in Scripture and didn't get it. If you don't get it, what good is it going to do to you? It becomes worthless to you. It becomes cryptic. It becomes something that is under, not understandable. And the Satan quickly comes and, and, and tries to distract you or move you away before you dig into it more and, and might understand the words that you've read. As for the wheat that was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. There's still a whole, not a whole lot of understanding at this part. But they're excited about what they hear initially. They're excited about the fact that Jesus loves them. They're, fact, they're excited about the fact that he's won salvation for them. Yet he has no root in himself. Doesn't understand that it requires obedience. Doesn't understand the sacrifice that Jesus made. Doesn't understand truly what it means to love the Lord yet. And so they endure for a while. And yet when tribulation, which usually comes from the outside or persecution, which usually comes from the church, arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
There's a lot of churches in America today that are promoting um, a lot of different ideology. They're saying this sin is no longer sin. Um, fresh new winds blowing into our world today, and, and it's no longer sin because you have this fresh new spirit that's come in that nobody can quantify or describe, but it's an excuse to change God's word. And if you don't know the truth, can you be caught up in that? Yeah. If, if you don't know the truth, I can get up here and say anything I want, and you go, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know we could do that now. You've got to know the truth. The truth allows you to discern true what God's word says and what God's word does not say. The truth allows you to, to bring simplicity and clarity to life when otherwise you're complicated by sin. I'll give you an example. I think I gave it to the, to the Wednesday morning class. I have a buddy, and I love him to death. But, but he got into this place where he's going through a divorce, and then he started dating a girl, and he said, I was in this conversation with my girlfriend's brother talking about my wife. He goes, it felt wrong. And they said, yeah, because it is wrong. You're not supposed to be dating when you're still married, right? I mean, that's why it feels wrong. That's why most people don't get into that situation because they wait until they're divorced to actually go into that situation. But he didn't want to not date. He was lonely. He was hurt. He wanted to fill the void. When you pursue sin, all of a sudden, the choices that you have before you is this sin or this sin. And then as you're asking me, I'm trying to navigate, well, which sin makes more sense, you know? Rather than just going back and saying, if you do the right thing, all of a sudden there's clarity in your life. All of a sudden you don't have those icky feelings in your life because you know you're doing the right thing, because you know you're following the truth. So much of the political discussion today, so much of the family discussion today, so much of the stuff that we talk about at work is because it's devoid of truth. There's, there's, there's debate where there should be no debate. There's not clarity where there should be clarity. And so when we don't know God's word, we're easily taken away. We endure for a while while the going's good, but when anything hard gets in the way, when any other truth is spoken to us that we can't combat or that we don't know better on, immediately we fall away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this is one who believes with all his heart believes that the Lord is God, his Savior. But then something creeps up. Some sin creeps up in the world. Sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's just you want to put your love for your kid above God's truth. I shared that example a few weeks back. Let's say your daughter decides that she's going to become a homosexual and pursues that relationship. And I was sharing that example, that, uh, that, couple, or that uh, couple in our congregation that was dealing with that with their daughter and the mom wanted to say, I love you so much, it's okay, and don't, don't worry about it. And she wanted to prioritize her daughter and abandon God's truth. And the dad was struggling so much because he knew it was wrong that he sacrificed his daughter, the relationship with his daughter because he was just so angry he couldn't figure out a way to talk about the truth. And we talked about how neither one's right, right? You love the sinner, you hate the sin. You love your daughter, you share the truth. But some people, because of the cares of this world and love for things in this world, whether it be love of relationships that we prioritize above God, whether it be love of money that we prioritize above God, sometimes substance, right, that we prioritize above God, we can lose ourselves, we can lose our salvation, we lose our way. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
because we abandon the word for these cares, for these loves, and we pursue them instead of God. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another case 60, in another case 30. It's another way of saying that this last person who believes and holds to God's truth will be saved, and his rewards in heaven will be great. 30, or uh, 60, 100-fold, I don't know what that means, but just that his rewards will be great. And clinging to God's word is hard sometimes. His truth is hard. We love people in our life, but we can't excuse their sin in a way that causes us to deny God's truth. And we love stuff. We live in America. We're all materialists at some level, right? But we can't abandon God's truth to pursue those things. One of the biggest condemnations on our church, and it's been probably in every century, is the lack of people that actually take tithing seriously. And it's remarkable the excuses that we have. They're, they're amazing and they're almost ironclad, the excuses. But God's so clear and he doesn't talk or take away at any level. He says, this is what it means to revere me, to put me first in your life. He says, it looks like 10%. But the love of money, the control that money brings, in some cases, the power that it brings for you to solve your own problems like medical or or child safety or, or safety for yourself or whatever it might be. Again, those cares of the world, the power that allows us to do different things that money offers, causes us to abandon the simple truth and pursue something different. By the way, you, you could pretty much put up any sin over here and we do the same thing, right? We want to do what we want to do and so we try to rationalize, justify, and excuse over here and we get lost along the way. One of the biggest uh, stereotypes whenever you talk about money in church is that people get upset. Pharisees got upset too every time Jesus talked about it. Why? Because in those conversations, you're asking people to choose to either follow God or to follow the desires of their heart. And they don't like being forced with that choice to choose God's truth or to choose your daughter. They're false choices. It's always this one, right? It's always follow God. And Jesus speaks to the very reality of this. And it says so many people get tripped up along the way. So many people, they find other idols to pursue. But again, as he's been consistent all the way through, those who persevere to the end will find more than they've ever imagined. Will find eternity in heaven with God. We'll find complete forgiveness for all their sins. We'll find community with all those that have gone before them that were believers in this amazing brotherhood and sisterhood in heaven. We'll find, well, and it goes on and on and on. So I, I leave you with those words to think of. It's Jesus explaining this parable of the sower. It's him trying to share with his believers to remain strong as they go through life. He says, I gotcha. And as long as I've gotcha, it's good, Right? In fact, we talk about election. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, know tonight that you're going to heaven. If something happens to you on the way home, you're good, right? So don't ever give it away. That's my prayer tonight. Don't ever give it away. Satan can't take that away from you. Your, your brother, your sister, they can't take it away from you. Nobody at work can take it away from you. The world can't take it away from you. The only person that can give away your salvation, this election that God has given you, is you. So don't give it away. And be secure in the love of God forever. All God's people said,
Amen. Let us pray. God, we love you so much. And when we talk through these things, it's scary. It's hard because we all get tripped up along the way. And, and so we, again, are so thankful for Jesus. We, we thank you that he died for us on the cross because we can't do this successfully by ourselves. We need that forgiveness and we need his strength and we need his words of truth to anchor our lives on because life can get so complex when we start making it up as we go. And so, Father, breathe your spirit of wisdom into us and, and breathe those truths that we are forgiven and loved by you into us. And breathe that strength that allows us to persevere over some of our desires and the things that trip us up. And give us a comfort of knowing that you walk with us every step of the way, cheering us on, rooting for us, strengthening us. Father, we love you desperately and we thank you for Jesus tonight. And all God's people said, amen.